And we are today beginning a brand new series. Matthew chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And one of our ushers in the back will give you one. It really helps to follow along the scriptures. Uh, because otherwise I get quite boring. And uh, so grab a Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. You can easily find the book of Matthew if you don't know where it is in the table of contents. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 1. Follow along in your Bible as I read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by his wife Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we begin this new series in the book of Matthew, and as we look at King Jesus, we ask that you would open up our eyes so that we might be uh, nourished by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's book, which I just gave away, another book that he wrote, Narnia, 
the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The climax of the story is this moment in which the lion, the great lion Aslan, is lying brutally murdered on a stone table. The two young girls are weeping his death, and they spend the night with their heads resting on the lion. They wake up as the sun comes up, and there the lion lies dead. Young Lucy murmurs, I'm cold. They get up, and in sorrow they walk away from Aslan. Just out of sight, the earth quakes and a loud crack is heard. They turn around, rush back, and the table has been broken in half, and Aslan is not there. One of the girls screams, what have they done? And it's at that moment that they look up, and there he is standing in glory, more majestic and beautiful than ever before, Aslan risen from the dead. This is C.S. Lewis's reflection on what happened that Easter morning. I can only imagine the feelings of the women who discovered the empty tomb and asked themselves, what happened? Where is he? Someone stole his body and they turn and there, in all of his glory, more majestic than ever before, is the lion of Judah, standing before them, the risen Jesus Christ. Oh, he had their hearts in that moment. The king. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Is Jesus the king of your heart? There are two spheres. Heaven and earth. Today we often think of heaven as this ethereal sort of space with wings and and spirits and clouds and harps. I don't even like harps. I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I'm sorry if you play the harp. And earth is sort of the, that's reality. Well, that's not the way the Bible understands heaven and earth. In the Bible, heaven is the sphere in which God's presence is most experienced in in its fullness. Heaven is the place in which God completely reigns as king, in which there is no sorrow, no tear, no death. And earth in the scriptures is the sphere of brokenness, of pain, of suffering, of death. And what hope is there in death? on earth. Death is the end. That's why we weep at death, because this person will no longer be in front of us on this earth. Is there hope? Well, friends, in the Scriptures, these two spheres were at one time united. God's presence, His kingship was completely experienced on earth. And there was no pain. There was no sorrow. But humans decided to reject God as king and they made their own crowns and they placed their own crowns on their own heads and they said, I am going to be the king and I am going to be the queen of my own life. And with that, brokenness, sorrow, pain, and death. But that is not the end of the story. 
we get to Matthew. See, all along in the Old Testament, all along in the Scriptures, in the story of God, there is this telling of this one who's going to come who is the presence of God. And as we enter into the Gospel of Matthew, what we see is that heaven and earth collide and meet in Jesus Christ. Where there is Jesus, there is the kingdom of heaven on earth. Is Jesus the king of your own heart? King is defined as the one who is sovereign, a monarch, one who holds chief authority over a people, one who is preeminent in class. Is Jesus the sovereign in your life? Does Jesus hold full authority in your life? Is, is He preeminent in your life? Now, some of the more discerning in this room are wondering why we're going to a Christmas passage on Easter. Genealogy, virgin birth, this is Christmas stuff, right? What does the genealogy of Jesus and what does his virgin birth have anything to do with the message of Easter, which is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it has everything to do with the message of Easter the message that Jesus rose from the dead because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that Jesus is the king. God rose Jesus as judge, as Lord, as king of all. And Jesus was risen to sit on the throne and rule forever and ever and ever. And Matthew is about the kingdom of heaven colliding with earth and his genealogy and virgin birth is all about establishing Jesus as the king of your own heart. So is Jesus the king of your heart? Let me ask you three more questions which will help you answer that question this morning. First question is this. Does Jesus have the, the right to be king of your heart? Does Jesus have the right to be king of your own heart? A couple weeks ago, I was telling my kids uh, my own family history. And I like to try to trace my family history back as far as I can trace it. So I sat down with them, and I'm like, you want to learn about your family history? And they were like, whatever. <laughs> and so I said, I gave it to them Bible style. I said, your great-great-great-grandfather Morrison begat great-great-grandmother Harriet, and then he died. Your great-great-grandmother Harriet begat your great-great-grandmother Elida, and then she died. Great-great-grandmother Elida begat great-grandmother Lucy, and then she died. And I just kind of went on like that, right? What, is a, what, what good is a family history? I mean, some of you, as, as I'm reading this family history, you were quite bored, weren't you? Just be honest. Like, where are we going today? I'm glad Tony's at least honest. What, I mean, what good is a genealogy? Isn't, like, I, I get it. I know that preachers are not supposed to pre use a genealogy as their text on Easter morning. All right? I'm well aware of that. 
But I want to submit to you today that family history matters. Not mine, but Jesus' family history really matters for the message of Easter. Let me just show you a couple things here with this family history of Jesus Christ. This is the lineage of Joseph. Now, right at the center of this genealogy is the name David. Matthew, as he's telling us this genealogy, wants us to zoom in on David. How do we know that? Look at verse 17. He says there are 14 generations from David, or from, from Abraham to David. 14, 14. There's three sets of 14. Why this number 14? Why does Matthew edit down the genealogy of Jesus to neat sections of 14? Why is that? Well, David... Let me, let, me, let me explain something here, is in the Hebrew spelled D-V-D. In the Hebrew, there is such a thing as uh, assigning numbers to letters. D in the Hebrew is the letter 4, I mean the number 4. V in the Hebrew is the number 6. 4 plus 6 plus 4, D plus V plus D equals 14. And David, his name, is the 14th name on this genealogy. Now, some of you are thinking, my pastor's lost his mind. We're getting into some strange Da Vinci Code sort of stuff this morning. Not at all. Listen, it's not, there's nothing like mysterious going on here. I'm not going like, to teach you some secret. Like, and then if you see that, you see your own name right there. You know. None of that. The Elk Lodge right there. No, this is actually just simple uh, Jewish literature. This is the way Hebrews made a point in their writing. It's a rhetorical device. They would do this all the time. It's not something that we use today, but for them it was very helpful. My point is this. Matthew, as he's giving us this genealogy, wants us to see the name David the king. Why is it that Matthew is pointing us back and focusing his entire genealogy around David? Well, I'll tell you why. In 1 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, there is a promise that is given to David. David at the time was ruling as the king of Israel. And David knew that his life was only going to be so long and then he would die. But God made a promise to King David. And it's a promise that still stands in 2016, today. This is the promise that God made to David. He said this, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when, the days are o- when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I, God, will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, the one who is to come. I will establish his throne forever and ever. There is this promise that was given to David that there is coming a king out of his lineage, of his own flesh and blood, who will forever sit on his throne and rule as king. Now there's something else that you might notice here, and some of you may have already picked up on this. This is Joseph's genealogy. Does Jesus share in the blood of Joseph? Well, we're going to get into that. But no, Jesus shares with the blood of Mary. 
And so her genealogy matters, and that's why Luke focuses on Mary's genealogy. But why focus on Joseph's genealogy in Matthew? Here's why. It's because Joseph is the legal father, not the biological father. Jesus is the legal father of Jesus Christ in Israel. In order for Jesus to have the right to the throne of David, he has to not only have the blood of David in his veins, but he has to be the legal heir to the throne as well which demands that not only Mary shares in the bloodline of David, but also that his legal father, Joseph, shares in the bloodline of David. Why am I saying all of this? Why, am I, why are we spending time looking at the genealogy? Here's the point I want you to rest your mind on. It's this. Jesus has the right to the throne. That's the point of Matthew's genealogy. Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David. Now, friends, listen. Jesus has the right to the throne of your heart. That promise given to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7 is a promise that still remains true today. Meaning whoever it is that's sitting on the throne of David today is God's rightful king. And that one has the right to rule me and you as king. I ask the question, does Jesus have the right to, to be the king of your heart? But it's not really us who decides that, is it? We don't determine whether or not Jesus has the right to be king of our, high, our heart. But we are faced with this question, will we recognize Jesus as the king of our heart? Will we receive Jesus as the king of our heart? Is Jesus truly the king of our heart? When I was in middle school, I remember it was very popular for the girls in middle school to say, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my dad. Jaden, do girls still say that today? You can't tell me what to do, you're not my dad? Anybody say that today? No, evidently not. Okay. Well, they did when I was in school. So, like, for instance, I might, I, I remember one time in particular, I dropped my eraser and it rolled under a girl's desk, and I said, hey, give me my eraser. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. Okay, but I do need my eraser, so. <laughs> but she's technically right, all right? I, I wasn't her dad, all right? I have no right to tell her what to do. Um, who has the right to your heart? So, I mean, we, we have all of these kings in our lives, right? We make kings for us. This is what humans do. We reject God as king, and we take our own crown, and we fashion our own crown, and we polish our own crown, and we wear our own crown. Who is the king of your heart? Is it you? Maybe it's lust. Maybe lust has been the king of your heart, and you are allowing lust to rule and reign. Maybe greed is the king of your heart. Maybe pride is the king of your heart. Maybe your own self-righteousness is the king of your heart. Maybe anger is the king of your heart. Who has the right to be king of your heart? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is it anger? Is it your friend? Is it your boss? Is it the fear of man? Is it yourself? Only Jesus has the right to be king of your heart. Let me ask you this question. How have all your other kings treated you? How have they been ruling and reigning in your heart? How have you done? How well has your lust ruled your heart? How gracious was your greed to you this past year? 
How kind was your pride to you as your pride ruled and reigned your own heart? How demanding has the fear of man been in your life? How much satisfaction do you have? Friends, all of the other kings ruin us. This isn't about your loss. This is about your gain. When I say Jesus has the right to, the, to, to your heart, to the throne of your heart, all of you should right now say, Amen, that's right, or whatever it is that you want to say to affirm that. Because this is a good thing. Amen. Secondly, does Jesus have the ability to be king of your heart? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. He has the right. Does he have the ability? All right, picture this. You're out to sea. You're on a boat. Boat springs a leak. You can't swim. Not a good thing. Boat fills up with water, goes under. Here you are, miles away from land, no ground beneath your feet in the waves of the ocean. So you're flopping your arms around. You know how you do it. You're gulping water, just trying to like stay afloat, and the water is surrounding your face. And then you kind of catch out of the glimpse of your eye, about 10 feet away, there's another person who's also flailing their arms and gulping water. And you hear this gurgled promise, don't worry, I'll save you. And that's when you know you're going to die. Because your new friend, who's also drowning, is your only hope. How does Jesus have the ability to save us? Here we all are, drowning in sin, despair, suffering, brokenness, death. How is Jesus any different? How does Jesus have the ability to rescue us. Well, this is exactly where Matthew goes next. Look at it. As we get into the text, he says something that's really quite shocking. The mother of Jesus, when she became pregnant, was a virgin. Let me show it to you. He says right there in verse 18, it says, by the way, in the Scriptures... Uh, sex is referred to in these words, coming together, knowing one another. Those are like code words for sex in the Bible. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth. Mary was a virgin. And some of you right now are thinking, the virgin Mary was a virgin? Yeah. Why we call her the Virgin Mary. What does that mean? What, I mean, first of all, how is this possible? Well, he, he tells us right here in verse 18, he says, she's found with the child from the Holy Spirit. He repeats it again, just in case you're like not quite hearing it or you can't wrap your mind around it. He says, she's conceived, the one who's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Pregnant. By the Holy Spirit, there was no sex involved, so don't get any strange ideas. But God, the Holy Spirit, placed the seed in the woman, which fertilized the egg. 
And she became pregnant as a virgin? What does this mean? Why is Matthew making this point? This is, this is phenomenal. Here's why. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus is not like us. The miraculous conception of Jesus Christ says that salvation does not come through normal, ordinary means of reproduction, but salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the outside. Jesus is absolutely unique in every way. He's 100% human, just like we are, yet He's 100% divine. Meaning that Jesus has the ability to be our King. Jesus isn't like the person 10 feet away from us who's flailing their arms and gulping water and drowning. Jesus is like the one in the orange suit who's jumping out of a helicopter coming in to save us. Salvation from the outside. That's why Jesus has the ability, because He's unique. Because He is like us, but He is not like us at all. Listen, friends, some of the issues in your life right now are so complex, you need salvation from the outside. There are some things going on in your marriage that you, you're, you and your spouse are like trying to figure it out, and it is so complex, you need help from the outside. You are so overwhelmed with the fear of man and constantly evaluating yourself based on your success or your appearance or how you uh, look in front of others or how tall you are or how big you are or how uh, fashionable you are or how successful you are as it relates to other people. And you, your, your mind is like crazy about this and you need help from the outside. You don't need help from another one of us who's just drowning in the sea of sin. You need help from a unique one. Someone who's entirely different. Someone who is actually able to be the king of your heart. And let me tell you this. Jesus is able. He's able to be the king of your heart. He's able to rule you well. He's able to fix your marriage. He's able to fix your, your, your self-identity. He's able to, 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 to forgive you of your sins. He's able to even inspire you to a life of righteousness. Jesus has every ability to be the king of your heart. Somebody say amen, please. Thank you. Thirdly, does Jesus have the credibility to be the king of your heart. Amen. Tony's got it. Amen. You got it. You see, we might say, okay, I, he's got the right if I believe the Bible. Right? Problem is, is I'm questioning some of this. He's got the ability if I believe the Bible. Problem is, is I'm questioning some of this. Your question you're asking this morning is, is, does Jesus have the credibility to be the king of my heart? Good question. You know, the, the, uh, if, if someone just busted through this curtain right here and, and said, there's a gas leak in this building, and if there's one little spark, the whole place is going to go up in flames like this place is going to blow any second. How many of you would just run out of here? The majority of you? How many of you would not? 
none of you would stay to listen to the rest of the sermon. Unbelievable. I was just testing you. Let's move. Let's get back into this. <laughs> no, we. I would be the first one out. All right, I'd be like working my way through the crowd, servant pastor. But we can't smell the gas. Why are we all running out of here? Why are we all so quick to believe the testimony? Well, we don't have any reason to believe he's lying. Right? There's a, I mean, there's a lot of socioeconomic and cultural and all, this, all these sort of factors that kind of play into this. And we think this guy is most likely telling us the truth. Right? And so we trust him. We take him at his word. We trust his testimony. It's fairly credible. And we get out of here. Now, the climax of this story in chapter 1 really has to do with Joseph. So Joseph has this dream, and an angel comes to him in his dream. And the angel tells him, your your betrothed one, Mary, is pregnant with the Holy Spirit's baby. Like, she's a virgin and all this kind of stuff. And he's going to be the Christ, the Lord, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The promised one, the one of David, the king. And then Joseph wakes up. Look at it, verse 24. This is the climax, and this is where the tension is in the story. When Joseph woke from his sleep, stop right there. He wakes up, back to reality, two feet on the ground. It's Monday morning, back to work, church is over, the experience, the feelings that you had there, that's yesterday, today's today. What do you do? What's Joseph going to do? At first, he, we know that he's possibly thinking about putting her away, quietly divorcing her out of shame believing that maybe she committed adultery, not trusting his dream. What does he do? Look what he does. He wakes from his sleep, and it says, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. That's the resolution. Joseph wakes up, and he acts in faith. Matthew chapter 1 ends with a call to faith. To faith. Now, let's ask the question on the credibility of Jesus. What gives our faith credibility? Well, for Joseph, it was the fact that an angel appeared to him. Now, he could have woke up and he could have thought, I'm going, turning schizophrenic and I'm having these strange dreams and just going to write it all off as crazy. He could have done that. But for whatever reason, we don't know exactly why, but we do know that Joseph had been in this long line, this tradition of waiting for the Messiah, and this experience was so powerful and true that he knew that this was indeed an angel of the Lord, and it gave him the credibility to act in faith and to take Mary as his wife. But what is it for us today? When we think of Jesus as the king of our hearts, what is it that gives us the credit, gives Jesus rather, the credibility to sit and rule? Why is it that I so passionately believe these things? 
Is it because I'm dumb? It's because I've just had these crazy experiences and I believe these myths? Why is it that so many of you have given your lives to this, this one called Jesus Christ? What is it that lends our faith credibility? Friends, it's Easter. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a historical document, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that very same thing. He says, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then this is all stupidity. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then we're just all wasting our time. If Jesus never rose from the dead, I have no clue why I got up at 5.30 this morning to look over my sermon notes. That's what Paul's saying. The, you, the, the whole credibility of our faith revolves around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it just a blind faith? Well, Paul goes on. How do we know? Paul says he appeared first to the women, then to the twelve, and then he appeared, Paul says, to 500 at the same time, the majority of whom are still living. Now, this is the way history, ancient history, was written. This is written as a historical document. Ancient history was written in this way. Essentially, someone would be watching a a battle, and then they would write the history of the battle, and they would say there was 40 others, and most of them are still alive. Meaning, you can verify this. You can test this. There are eyewitnesses. Friends, all of the apostles went to their death Hot tar poured over their bodies, tortured, skin peeled off their back, crucified upside down. Many of those 500 that witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ went to a brutal death, and there is not one shred of evidence that any single one of them ever recanted their story. Every single one of them. None of them said, wait a second, before you, 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 you peel the skin off of my body, let me just tell you, it was all a hoax. Jesus didn't rise from the... No, none of, not a shred of evidence. What we do have evidence of is the fact that all of these men and women bravely and boldly went to their death saying, Jesus is alive. He's risen. The intellectually honest historian will tell you something had to happen three days after Jesus died. Nothing else can account for the rise of the Christian faith. Why is it that Jesus, I know that Jesus has the credibility to be the king of your heart? It is because Jesus rose from the dead. Your faith is not a blind faith. Your faith is based on this historic reality, an event that happened in time. And it has changed millions of men and women for 2,000 years. And it will continue to change men and women until the end of this era. One day Jesus will come back. Heaven will completely crash to earth. Is Jesus the king of your heart? Turn to Matthew 28 as we close. I'm going to show you what his rule looks like for us today. 
And as you turn, let me remind you of the definition of king, a sovereign one, monarch, one who holds authority over a people. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth. Let me read that again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples, teach all things that I've commanded you. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the King. As King, listen to this, as King, His rule is just. I know some of you have been wronged in your life. I I know a lot of your stories. You have severely been wronged by some people. And it has changed the entire trajectory of your life. Listen, there is not a wrong that this king will not eventually make right. He is a just king. There is not an empty word that this king will not hold accountable. He is a just king. He is a righteous king. Some of you have been abused by authority. This king will never abuse you. He is only for your good. This king is not out for selfish purposes. Now some of you are asking this question. If he is indeed just and he is indeed right, how can I be in his kingdom? It's because this king is a king that rules by grace. He is a gracious king. Back in this genealogy here, we didn't have time to get into it. But one of the things that I would love to do is just walk through every name in this story and you'll see that he is a king of grace. Let me just give you a couple highlights. In his genealogy, Abraham was an adulterer. Jacob was a liar. Judah sold his brother into slavery. Tamar was a victim of incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was an outsider. David, a murderer. Solomon married godly women. The wisest man on earth, ungodly women. The wisest man on earth who made the dumbest mistakes in his reign. Listen, I could just go on. But throughout this genealogy, what we see is that every single one of these people is a sinner. None of them earned their way into the kingdom. None of them earned it. None of them deserve to be on this kingly list. But it's because Jesus reigns not with law, but he reigns with grace. Jesus reigns with grace. There's not one self-righteous person in this room who can one day earn their way into the kingdom of God. If you come to the gates of God's kingdom and you say, oh, look what I've done. I have prayed every day. I've done all of these good things. Jesus says, I never knew you. What does it take to enter into this king's kingdom? It takes us falling down before him, broken, naked, with nothing. And we crawl to to the gates of the kingdom. And he says, what do you have? to enter into the kingdom and you, you show your empty hands and you say, I have nothing. 
And Jesus says, come on in. For now you know that you need a Savior. This King is a King of grace. The book of Revelation has the most beautiful picture of this King. This King in the book of Revelation is forever and ever and ever sitting on the throne of David. Unlike every single person in his lineage who died, Jesus continues to live because Jesus went through death. He's the last of his lineage. And he sits and reigns as the king forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is also the lamb. The bloodied, slaughtered lamb who stands in the middle of the church as the church forever sings their praises to the lamb who was slain, who took the sins of the world upon him. And Jesus is also the lion. The lion of Judah, the great king who through his death and through his resurrection rose victorious, triumphing over every single enemy. Is this king the king of your heart? Is he your king this morning? And I pray he is. Cry out to him. Say, God, I have nothing to bring. I've got nothing. I need a Savior. I, I, I'm broken. I, I'm tired of working for my righteousness. I need help. And I guarantee you that this King will come to your aid. He has the right. He has the ability. And He has the credibility to be the King of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is indeed the King. We ask that You would help us honor Him, worship Him, Serve him as the king of our own heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.